product managers tell me and the people managing product managers tell me that one of their biggest challenges is communicating with and working with the development team. People, these product managers, complain about two things in particular. One is the developers being poorly motivated or having a bad attitude about what you want them to build. And the other is getting the wrong thing from the developers. Basically, the feature that they deliver is not what you had in mind. Now, those are two of the biggest problems. There's plenty of other forms of miscommunication between product management and dev, but those are the two biggest ones. Now, thinking back to the title of this podcast, All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, if these communication breakdowns are happening, irrespective of whether it's your fault, air quotes, it's going to fall to you, the product manager or product management team, to fix it. And let's be realistic, it's definitely at least partly your responsibility and partly your fault. You're likely causing some of these problems to some degree. Now, why do I say that? And if it's the case, what can we do about it? Well, stay tuned. By the way, this episode has a fancy little infographic you can download and print out and hang on your cubicle wall. Check out the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 316 for the link for that. Welcome to episode 316 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, the podcast for product managers, product marketers, innovators, and entrepreneurs, and everyone who wants to have better, more successful products in the market. I'm Nils Davis. Our primary mechanism for communicating with development, aside from having conversations with them and talking to them, which I hope you do, of course, is via product requirements, the documented why and what of a new feature or new capability or a new module or even a new product altogether. Now, I'm going to use the term requirements in this podcast episode. You might call them features or feature specifications or epics or user stories. I don't know what you call them. All of these terms have problems in various ways, but that's really a topic for a different episode. So for short, we're going to call them requirements or product requirements for this episode, and hopefully we'll all kind of agree on what that means and not our heads. I'm hoping you'll be with me on that. The point is, irrespective of what we call them, product requirements are our stock in trade as product managers. And chances are, we are not doing as good a job of writing and communicating these as we could if we want to avoid the problems that I was mentioning in the beginning. Now let's start by thinking about developers as people for a minute. This might be a shock to you, but developers are human beings. And like all human beings, like all people, developers are motivated by what Dan Pink in his awesome book Drive calls the components of Motivation 3.0, which are Mastery, Autonomy, and Purpose. Now, you can use the handy acronym MAP MAP, to help you remember these, and I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. It's a really worthwhile read. Now, of course, we product managers are also driven by the same things, But again, our motivation is a topic for a different episode as well. But for now, let's think about what mastery, autonomy, and purpose mean for software developers. I think mastery is probably pretty clear. It means that they're in control of their tools, they're expert at using them. And the tools, of course, are programming languages, but also the engineering disciplines that they use, like technical design and architecture and problem solving, and even using their tools outside of the programming languages like building and knowing how to set up servers and all those sorts of things. Now, autonomy is a little less clear. What does it mean for a 
developer, part of an engineering team, amongst other engineering teams in a big company, to be autonomous? Well, I take it to mean that they get to apply their mastery to solve problems in their own way, using their own expert skills. And this may be why engineers are so often frustrated when product managers, out of the goodness of their hearts, go beyond the why and the what in their requirements and start to talk about the how. Because essentially we're stepping on their toes in terms of autonomy. The third piece, purpose, is often the biggest problem for developers, at least in a lot of companies I've experienced. As product managers, we usually have a very good sense of our purpose. We've been out talking to our customers, we've learned what their problems are, and we know that the feature that we've described is going to help our customers have better, more successful lives and to achieve their business and personal goals. But often, the requirement that we write for a capability that will have a big positive impact on the customer's life will have lost all of that connection by the time it gets to an engineer. The engineer is given a document that describes something the PM wants, the product manager, but with no connection to the way it makes the customer's life better. Now, this significantly dilutes a sense of purpose that the engineer has and consequently reduces their motivation to do it. Now, it doesn't just reduce their motivation, but it probably reduces the quality of their work as well, setting aside motivation, because engineers are motivated by solving important problems using their mastery of problem solving and architecture and design and programming in new and creative ways, using their autonomy so they can improve customers' lives, achieving a meaningful purpose. That sounds really great, but if we don't really help them understand the purpose very well, then they're not going to be as motivated to do that, and they probably won't be able to do as good a job. So if your requirements are not meeting the standard that lets them do that, they will be less motivated. What can we do? And part of the answer is to actually use a rubric. I've talked in the past about the value of templates for managing our cognitive resources as product managers, and I've described various templates in some different articles, and I'll link to some of those. One of them that I like to use myself is one I call impact areas, which is another thing you would use in doing product requirements or product feature specs. Another useful and similar tool is rubrics. Remembering back to high school, the idea of a rubric is that it gives a grader, looking at a bunch of essays, a method for quickly scoring the essays. A rubric for grading an essay might count spelling as somewhat important, and the presence of a topic sentence as very important, for example. Now, there's a handful of rubrics for writing requirements and related things. The best known one is INVEST, which is an acronym for Independent, Negotiable, Valuable, Estimatable, Small, and Testable. But for me, I've never felt that the INVEST acronym spoke to me as a person who is trying to solve problems for customers with my products. INVEST loses focus on the market problem, and instead takes too many implementation considerations into account. Now, there is another much better rubric for requirements that I've found. It unfortunately does not have an awesome acronym, like INVEST, but Scott Selhorst of the Tyner Blaine blog, he created the Big Ten Rules for Writing Good Requirements. In fact, I think there's now 12 of those rules now. And I'll put a link to his rubric in the show notes. But in the end, I decided to put together a rubric that directly addressed those issues that I mentioned at the top head-on. For example, the customer's problem, the thing we're trying to solve. It really needs to have pride of place when you write a feature spec or a requirement. We must make sure that the development organization and product management are on the same page. That's kind of a meta requirement that we're fully aligned. And the requirement is a lot more valuable if it includes acceptance tests. Developers, 
QA and product management can quickly understand if the feature really solves the problem. So I wanted to include those three things as well as other things. Now to capture all of these insights and a few more, I created a new requirements template and this template will enable you to communicate more effectively with the development team. And it has a great acronym and it really does work. I've, I've used it since I invented it. I say that I invented it. I took a lot of ideas that were out there and I combined them into something that has a great acronym. That's what I, that was my main contribution to this. But I think it's very useful and very powerful. The rubric is called Valuable. That's its name. It'll enable you to communicate more effectively with the development team, with the QA team, even with your business people. Because developers are motivated by solving real problems for real customers, Valuable is designed to help them understand the value they're creating. The traditional rubrics for requirements and user stories, such as Invest, as I said, they lose that focus on the market problem, and instead they do a little bit more focus on implementation considerations. But with Valuable, the market problem and the focus on the customer drive the whole thing. Now, by the way, accompanying this episode and the notes, I have created an infographic-style mini-poster that you can download and print out and hang on the wall if you like. So you can check out the show notes for that. Alltheresponsibility.com slash 316 is where you find those. Now, the rubric is called Valuable, and as I say, it's an acronym. So V is actually for Valuable, which, yes, it is a recursive acronym. And what Valuable is about is the urgent, pervasive problem that this feature is going to solve for a real market that will pay for the solution, right? If you think about what a product is, a product is a solution to a problem that's urgent enough and compelling enough that somebody will buy a solution to that problem. And so the first part of the rubric here is just to make sure that we surface that problem that we're trying to solve. And that's true for a product as a whole. It's also true for individual features. Individual features need to solve problems that our customers are experiencing. Ideally, they need to solve those problems better than other alternatives. So that's the V. A is for aligned. This feature is aligned with our company strategy and priorities. L is for loved. Why will customers love this feature? And this has to do with making sure that we do a nice job of design, that it's implemented cleanly, that it doesn't make them do stupid things, and it won't cause additional problems. So that's the rubric part of love. U is for understood. The requirement is understood the same way by engineering and product management. If you just make sure that that's part of your process, and again, I said this is a meta requirement for for our requirements, it's really important that engineering and product management are on the same page about what this feature really does. The second A is for acceptance tests. The requirement has clear acceptance criteria so it's easy to tell if the implementation delivers a desired value. B is for bounded. The development team and the product management organization both agree that this feature is realistically achievable by the current team. Now this doesn't mean we know exactly how long it will take or when it will be delivered, just that we're confident we can deliver it soon enough for it to make a difference. The second L is for leverages. The feature leverages our competencies and unique abilities, both technical and business. If it doesn't do that, it's less likely to be super valuable to the customer. And the final E is for expected usage. The requirement includes explicit and testable usage expectations. These can be used to instrument the feature and also to monitor the feature once it's been deployed. To customers. Now, as you can probably tell, I'm coming at the goals of writing requirements from a very different place than Invest. In particular, as I've written about before, and you can see a link in the show notes, I, 
have always said that anything interesting, interesting enough to customers to notice, is not really estimatable, at least not at the outset. And that's why I use this idea of bounded rather than estimatable. Now, Scott Selhorst's system does something similar. They use the term attainable. But the point is we don't really know how long it's going to take in advance, but we are confident that we can do it, that we know enough to create something that's of value in a reasonable amount of time. Now, the INVEST acronym also does have a V for valuable, but it's mixed in with other terms like independent and small and testable that are much more implementation focused and less appropriate for product requirements per se. Also unlike INVEST, valuable is much more explicitly about customer value, about strategic alignment, and about coming to a common understanding with development. You know, we always talk about in Agile that a story card, you know, the post-it note that you write that says, as a somebody or other, I need to do X, Y, Z, is meant to be the beginning of a conversation. This valuable rubric makes sure that you know that the conversation must happen and everyone must come to agreement. Now, my rubric leaves out independent and negotiable, which I think are not necessary, and small, which again, most interesting things are not that we're going to be writing a, a requirement about. And it covers some things that Invest doesn't, such as the expected use, the alignment with strategy, levering our competencies, and even acceptance tests. On the other hand, no one rubric can contain everything, and some things are missing from this one because they didn't fit the, the acronym, obviously. But for example, it doesn't explicitly mention that the market problem mentioned under V has been validated, although I think it is kind of implied that we have for some reason, come up with a conclusion that if we solve this problem, it will be worthwhile for us and for our customers. The rubric also doesn't mention anything related to technical specifications, and I've explained why that can be demotivating for developers, so that was a conscious decision. Now, if you think about the purpose of a requirement to capture the why and the what of a feature and not the how, this makes sense. But, of course, there's nothing limiting you from putting technical guidance into the requirement if you feel you have something of value to offer that's not going to step on the autonomy of the development team. Now, how do I use this rubric in practice? Well, there's a few ways to use it, and its usage is potentially going to be similar to how you might use invest. But first of all, you'd use it as a sort of an admonition to people writing requirements. You'd say to people writing requirements, don't forget to keep valuable in mind as you write your requirements and make sure you touch all these bases in your, in your functional spec or in your requirement. Now, you can also use it as an acceptance test for requirements, which is sort of the flip side of that. So if you're reviewing a, re a requirement that someone has written, you might want to use this rubric to help you decide, does this requirement have all the stuff in it that it needs? Now, this is particularly true if, there, if you do have issues with the handoff of requirements from product management to development. The valuable rubric gives both sides something to sort of hang their hats on in terms of acceptability and about having a discussion about what is missing or not missing from the requirement. Now, you can also use the rubric, or at least parts of it, as the actual table of contents for your requirements. So often when I write requirements, I have a section that's specifically about the problem that we're solving. And that really covers the V part. And I might also talk about why we've decided to solve this problem. And that has to do with the alignment part, why it's aligned with our strategy. It might have to do with the L, the second L, which is how it leverages our core competencies and what we know. 
I put those in there. Obviously, acceptance tests are a common thing to put into it, some requirements, and so on. So not everything that's in the rubric in that the letter's valuable is something you would use as a table of contents piece, but a lot of it would make sense in a table of contents. So that is the valuable rubric that I have written about a few times and really hasn't been on the podcast. It was on my original very old podcast, but that is actually not accessible anymore, so thought I should do it again. I would really love to hear what you think of this approach to writing better requirements that I think result in better deliveries from your development team. Take a look at the episode notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 316. You'll find links to the books, episodes, and other articles that I mentioned in this episode, including the link to download the infographic, which I think is perfect for hanging on the wall of your cube if you print it out. You can leave me a comment if you think that this can help you and your organization to be more effective, or you can leave me a comment saying that you don't agree, and I'd love to hear that as well. If you did like this episode, please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast subscription method, and please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're like me and you listen on Overcast, there's a little star next to the episode, and you can click that star, and that will help other folks find the show. I hope this was interesting and useful and valuable for you. Let me know if so or if not. And until next time, this is Nels Davis. Thanks for listening. Fire. Four, three, two, one. We have ignition.